Welcome to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Today, we continue our exploration of useful medicinal herbs with Jenny Perez, Education Coordinator for the American Botanical Council, or ABC, in Austin, Texas. Jenny has both the formal education and the practical experience of learning about, growing, and using herbs, both as a way to promote health and as tasty flavorings for food. The American Botanical Council is a nonprofit organization which aims to provide accurate information to the public so that we can make educated choices about herbs, medicinal plants, other beneficial botanicals, essential oils, and fungi as part of taking care of ourselves and our health. They've been around for more than 30 years and have a highly regarded peer-reviewed journal called Herbalgram, a website and an online version of the journal, where you'll find scientific studies of various plants and herbs with details of what they can and, in some cases, cannot do for us. In our last program, Jenny introduced us to holy basil, also called tulsi, and to the many wonders of calendula. Jenny, what's our next plant? The next plant I'd like to talk about grows well in our central Texas climate, but I think many growers are just now realizing that and might be more interested. It's hibiscus. However, it's a specific species, hibiscus sabdorifa, also known as roselle. Um, it's it's the species, it's a species-specific medicine because in Texas I'll say, oh, we are growing hibiscus. They'll say, oh, I grow hibiscus. I've got yellow, white, pink. That is a different species. Okay. That's, I believe, hibiscus esculentus. There's different, there's a variety. Again, plants have many species within the genus, so it can get confusing, especially in medicinal horticulture. But hibiscus sabdorifa is the species that produces the scarlet red calyx, I will stop there because yeah. you'll be like, what's a what calyx? Is a calyx? <laughs> so the calyx is the cup that the flower petals, the flower sits in. And um, botanically speaking, many people think, oh, well, it, they, they think, oh, it's a hibiscus. It's a flower medicine. But actually, it's the calyx that we use. And we let that calyx ripen. What does that mean? That means the, the, the plant will produce pink flowers after the flowers get tickled by pollinators, the flower will kind of twist up on itself and the immature ovary that's at the base of the flower will begin to enlarge. And as it's enlarging, and but it's still immature, the red scarlet calyx will cover it up and get bigger and bigger as that immature ovary starts to grow. We collect the calyx and we remove the immature ovary that, you know, I haven't experimented with leaving it intact, although some herbalists um, have done that. So the other thing I want to pause and say is that hibiscus is related to okra. And when you think about right. okra, yeah, the flower looks you, you, like hibiscus. Uh, yes. Yeah. And okra is all about mucilage. Right. So the ovary of the even the hibiscus sabdorifa is slimy, white, mucilaginous and what we know about okra is its therapeutic benefits are because it's mucilaginous. It's soothing to internal mucous membranes. So I think that some herbalists that are harvesting the calyx and the immature ovary are maybe getting a little bit better medicine if they're using it and again drying it well so there's no mold, etc. because the mucilage will also add to the soothing properties internally. However, the research on the red scarlet calyx is about 
those, it can help those that have metabolic syndrome. What is that? That means pre-diabetes or people that are, have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, et cetera. And some of the research shows that even again, water, water being the universal solvent, two to three cups of hibiscus abdorifa tea can keep those levels at more normal and more normal ranges prior to someone saying, let's get you on metformin. So it's the, there's a window of opportunity for some of these plants where we could potentially use something as gentle as a tea and have great benefits for keeping ourselves off of medications with known adverse effects. If you are already on medication or if you have low blood pressure, this may not be your tea. We had a woman come visit our gardens and she's like, oh, I, she was observing our hibiscus that we were growing. And she said, I love hibiscus tea, but every time I drink it, I get dizzy. I said, oh, do you happen to have low blood pressure? And she says, yes. Huh? I said, well, this is not your tea. This, you know, you're going to have to try peppermint or something else, but this definitely has a marked, it, it can lower your, huh. um, blood sugar, you know? And so for those of us that always, where maybe it's trending up more than down, it can be something that we drink instead of sweet, sugary iced tea that we can help ourselves. And it tastes nice. It's also called sour tea. It has a sour flavor. It's cooling. So it grows in the summer. Again, it's, um, some plants are available in the right season to do things we need them to do, like cool us down when it's hot. So in this case with hibiscus, um, you get a lot of bang for your buck. One plant can give you a pretty good yield, and it, it, it doesn't die until winter kills it. You're listening to Mothering Earth with Salwa Khan and my guest, Jenny Perez, from the American Botanical Council. Moving on from hibiscus sabdorifa, the next plant we'll learn about is turmeric. Also, you can pronounce that turmeric. Turmeric is curcuma longa, and it is in the same plant family as cardamom and ginger. Uh, many people know about the wondrous anti-inflammatory properties of turmeric. It is has thousands of years of use in Ayurveda and lots of modern research supporting its ability to control systemic inflammation. A lot of our disease conditions are due to chronic inflammation. And turmeric is something that can be consumed safely via food or via capsules, but in terms of growing it, it is the rhizome that we use and grow, and it's a, it's herbaceous, it's subtropical to tropical, and we have found that ABC, we can let it overwinter. We, really? Yes. So it'll come back, it'll die down. It will die down and come back. Sometimes we pile a bunch of leaves on top of the stand after the, yeah. before we know it's going to start getting into some freezing temperatures, but by doing that, by letting it stay in the ground, our stands have gotten bigger every year because yeah. it it creates its own babies by making more rhizomes underground. And we can divide and propagate again or harvest and make preparations. Um, one of my favorite ways to use it fresh is I put two parts ginger, one part turmeric, both fresh. I peel them, wash them, and chop them. And I make like a ginger turmeric honey. And you can add a tablespoon of that to sparkling water. And it's like an anti-inflammatory ginger ale or something like that. Or you can drizzle it on vegetables or find ways. Again, does it have 
how many grams of curcuminoids am I getting? That's not the point with this particular, and again, it's just about finding different ways of using these plants regularly, right. whether you're cooking curry or having tea, or yeah. there's just, you have to wrap your head around how frequently can I get this in my body in food-like ways, because right. that's the safest way to do it. Right. So, is it possible to, this is something I've just, I'm curious sure. about, because I've, I've just started growing turmeric, mm -hmm. is could you take, uh, could you sort of chop it up and put it in a salad? It's, it's quite, it's not the best tasting herb oh. fresh. That's why I was saying two parts ginger, one part <laughs> turmeric. So it depends on your own palate, but it doesn't have as pleasant of a flavor as ginger. There's mm -hmm. no reason that it has to be only used in Indian cooking oh, or no. curries. I mean, you could put it in stews or Absolutely. whatever. Absolutely. What we've learned about the active compounds of turmeric is that they are they're, they actually are more fat soluble than water soluble. So you think about curry and you've got coconut milk in there, mm -hmm. right? So that, that fat acts with the right. phyto constituents in turmeric and they just like, oh yes, that's the right match. So here you go, yeah. delivery complete. Right. So the other evidence they found is that turmeric is better absorbed if, if black pepper is in the mixture. So black mm -hmm. pepper has a constituent called piperine, which enhances the absorption of the curcuminoids that are in turmeric. So a lot of ancient Ayurvedic preparations, golden milk has, it doesn't have to be dairy, it can be coconut, any kind of nut milk, mm -hmm. um, but you're gonna put the turmeric powder in there and maybe a pinch of pepper. Mm -hmm. And wow. that is just food science and a little bit of kitchen magic mm -hmm. there that helps it all, again, Thousands of years ago, nobody knew about the curcuminoids. There were just these ways you prepared it. Right. You know, why do we, why do we, why don't we eat potatoes raw? Why do we soak beans? There are reasons for that, but that goes beyond what we can talk about right. today. <laughs> so, um, I would just say you, we can also grow ginger, so don't forget about that one too. And how do you get your starts? Go to the organic produce aisle, <laughs> right. and they're not irradiated. They will sprout. I mean, if you've had ginger sit on your counter for too long and it starts to grow, shallowly planted in some nice potting soil or in your garden soil. Right. Same with turmeric. The little nubby parts are where the leaves will come up. So, yeah. it's, and it, it kind of looks like a banana it, leaf. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Or yeah. canna lilies. A right. lot of people are like, oh, right. are you growing cannas? I'm like, actually, that's turmeric. Right. You know. So, yeah. and for people that want to have your garden look beautiful, it still is quite lovely intermixed in a planting garden. You Definitely. know, it, it, you you can make it work. Yeah. Forget your you know boxwoods. <laughs> <laughs> they don't give us much at all. Right. So anyway. Okay. What's our next the perennial next plant? Um, I will talk briefly about is goji berry. Lyceum is the genus, Lyceum barbarum or Lyceum chinense, and it is in the tomato family, really? believe it or not. So yeah, yes, it's know. related to ashwagandha, which is also in the tomato family, and it's related to eggplant, huh. you know, all those great hot peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, etc. So goji berry it comes to us from the Chinese medicine tradition predominantly where it's used as a yin tonic, yin meaning moisturizing or creating more mm. juiciness. I mean, you think about the juiciness, they're like tiny little tomatoes hanging on those plants. Um, and so in Chinese medicine, they use it for kidney and liver benefits. Mm. Um, what we've learned that is in the fruits, they have a lot of 
carotenoids, antioxidants, uh, zeaxanthine being one of them, which is related to macular, it can help right. prevent macular degeneration. Right. So in Chinese medicine, it was always used for eye vision problems too. Right. And, and so it's very interesting. People, you can eat it like raisins. You can dry them again and put them in oatmeal and they plump up. And mm -hmm. um, I don't care for the way they taste fresh. Um, they're just too tomatoey for me. Uh, and I guess I have like a little bit, I want it to be sweeter because it's a fruit right. anyway. <laughs> but uh, it does well in our climate. I find that in areas, we did grow those at Bastyr and we had longer periods of cooler weather and I found that the fruits were sweeter. You're listening to Mothering Earth, and it's time for a break. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here with Jenny Perez, Education Coordinator of the American Botanical Council. We've been getting a great education on herbs, including holy basil, also called tulsi, calendula, turmeric, and now we're on to the goji berry, which is related to tomatoes and eggplant. Where it grows in China, there it's, it's more in the mountains. Again, and if you think about it, they've got a very interesting system of that certain regions of China are dedicated to growing certain medicinals because of the altitude, mm. et cetera, and the conditions being just right for producing the best outcome. And here we are just putting it in and hoping for the best. So it, there's something to say about this element of terroir is what they call it, or region, landscape, the, the, the place in which it grows. Sort of the homes. The, the home, home yes. There's an yeah. element of right place, right plant. But for me, I will try anything and just see how it goes. And if I don't get the best outcomes, then try again or switch to a different plant or, you yeah. know. And, and the goji is sort of like a, a vine. The goji, of, actually, it can be. Of. It's also one of its common names is matrimony vine. It has a huh. weeping habit. So it's, right. a, it's a woody perennial that has, you kind of have to give it a haircut or it'll swallow things up next to it. So it's a weeping perennial. Um, and it will lose its leaves in winter, but then sprout back on that same mm -hmm. weeping woody material again. Right. Right. And it has tiny pink flowers. Again, the flowers mm -hmm. will look a lot like the tomato plant, they just do. a different yeah. color, etc. Right. And um, it can take drier conditions. Again, that's why we're talking about since you, you know our home base is Central Texas. It doesn't mean that other people can't grow it. Obviously, because in the Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest, you just can get a different outcome. Right. You know. And I feel that most gardeners out there are willing to try it, especially if it's something you can gain food or medicine from. It's exactly. worth a try. Absolutely. And, and our then last plant. <laughs> uh, lastly, I would like to talk about echinacea. Echinacea is native to the United States. Many of these other plants I've talked about are from different parts of the world, but echinacea is part of the you know central part of the United States and prairie habitats, which we are losing due to urbanization, too many people uh, swallowing up the land. But however, it's very easy to cultivate. And the species that we'll talk about briefly, there's Echinacea angustifolia, which is called narrow leaf coneflower. And then there's Echinacea purpurea, which is 
called purple coneflower in terms of its common names. Uh, Purple coneflower or the purpurea species is very easy to grow. Angustifolia is also, but I find purpurea is even easier. Uh, We tend to push the easy button around here if we need a lot of them. So, uh, but it doesn't mean don't try at all. But because it is considered an at-risk plant in its native habitat, it's important that we buy cultivated or organically cultivated medicine or grow it ourselves rather than, oh, I'm I'm in its native habitat. How about I dig some? Mm -hmm. It's really not ethical to do that anymore. So an organization that gardeners can find out more about those types of at-risk medicinal species is called United Plant Savers. Mm -hmm. And they publish lists of at-risk or to-watch species that many people who want to grow their own medicine should look at because even at, or even buy their own because you don't want to buy wild ginseng you want to have you have to buy forest cultivated ginseng for it to be ethical because the the native habitat of ginsengs are being destroyed yes destroyed okay. and in terms of we have to be ethical and we have to be stewards of the earth to keep right. our medicine available to everybody who's becoming t- more excited about using natural medicine. Right. And if we lose the native habitat, that is just terrible. I mean, we already know what happens when we lose native insects and frogs and other animal species. Plants are even more hard to, you can't bring them back from right. extinction. Seed banks are one thing, but the climate's changing, the soils are changing. So it's important to just be mindful so mm-hmm. i would just that's my quick pause as to where to look for what do, can i buy this wildly wild crafted or wild harvested or do i need to look for organic cultivated sources so echinacea again is easy to grow it's it's in the same plant family as calendula which we talked about earlier it is an herbaceous perennial and the part that we use historically is the root although there has been evidence that the um the seeds have uses and are also food for birds in winter and also the um the immature we we can harvest the flower at a certain part of its growth for additional medicine benefits but historically we it it was known as rattlesnake bite root because they would use it for venomous bites, whether it be uh, spiders, rattlesnakes, etc., as a topical, as or? a topical or oral, they would chew okay. on the root, the, okay. and so it has um, alkalamides, which create a tingling sensation on the tongue. But uh, what I tell everybody, if they care to listen, is that having a tincture of echinacea in your hiking backpack, especially right. in Texas, is a great first aid kit, a great first yeah. aid idea. Because if you were to come across um, a snake and somebody gets bit, you would take it orally every two hours and you can bathe the the wound. Mm -hmm. Because again, a tincture is alcohol and water. So it's disinfecting and we are absorbing some of that topically at the the site of injury. And then we are mounting the kicking in the immune defense responses by taking it in more frequent doses for those kinds of conditions. So um, when you hear people are out sick at the office or your, you know, your son comes home coughing and you're like, uh oh, or you start to feel that tightness in your throat, that's time for echinacea. Don't wait another day because you need to start getting those phytochemicals working and doing their thing so that if you do get sick, the duration's shorter. It's not like a magical pill or a magical button, but we're talking about reducing severity and and, and length of 
yeah. duration. Yeah. So that's all we can hope for. Who wants to be on antibiotics if right. you don't have to be? And antibiotics don't work. You know, right. for we, if it's viral, you got to ride it out. But do you have to be miserable? No. So plants are our allies in so many cases. Right. And it's just that we've lost a lot of the knowledge, a lot of the connection to nature and the there's a lot of skepticism like i was saying uh, this this mistrust that somehow nature's not not helping us but we have co-evolved with plants even though there's too many of us on earth now and she's probably going to try to shake some of us off those of us that know how to work with her plants and work with the the and the medicines that we can grow and or access through our communities um, and through different herbalists around wherever you live, we're going to be okay. I, I feel like people that don't know about natural medicine are going to be the ones that miss out and lose out in some way. I hate to be doom and gloom. It's just right. another way of knowing that nature is here to help us, but we have to help ourselves by educating ourselves. One of my favorite quotes by our executive director, Mark Blumenthal, is before you self-medicate, self-educate. Because That's a, a lot one. of accidents and misuse of herbal preparations are because, oh, I saw this on Dr. Oz, blah, blah, blah. Take this, take too much, more is better. No. And that's again where the American Botanical Council, through all of our resources in our, on our website and then through our journal, we really work toward safe, appropriate use of herbal medicines. Because if we lose access to nature's medicines, what does that look like? I don't even want to think about that. Because again, again, for many parts of the world, you know, two thirds of the world's population uses plants as their first and foremost way to prevent and treat disease. Right. It's in the West that we've thought we've figured it out by isolating constituents and making drugs. And yes, I'm not, I'm saying if I'm injured and I need a medical doctor, take me there. Appendicitis, take me there. Uh, but in the meantime, a lot of our chronic illnesses can be looked at through a lens of nature cure. How can we align or our prevention. change our diet? Nature prevention, maybe cure is not the right word. Yeah. Nature pre preventing and mitigating the severity of illness. Um, that's all we can hope for. And keeping ourselves well. If we can keep, if we can eat well, then we're not going to have to be in this loop of medications. And then here's another medication for the adverse effect. And here's mm -hmm. this. And yes, this has these adverse effects. And I'm sorry, but you have to take them. And it, because it's difficult to get people, you, I, as an herbalist, we're, that's not my goal is to get you off your drugs. It's, it's to help find a way where what you're taking is not going to interfere with what I might be suggesting, or let's look at your diet and see if we can get some of those things to resolve. I mean, again, traditional medicine systems say that most of disease starts by poor digestion, right. Um, uh, one of my favorite sayings of Ayurveda, they, we say we are what we eat. They say you are what you absorb. <laughs> if we are not absorbing through these things called leaky gut and all these different digestive diseases and imbalances, we could be eating the best diet ever and still not be getting well. And you think about the magic of turmeric and black pepper, and that is enhancing absorption, you know, and right. coupling those in a fat, enhancing the absorption. There's so much that we have to still learn from tradition, but it can be coupled and 
balanced with modern research as people become more interested about how how that works and why that might be important to know. So uh, if people wanted to learn more about the American Botanical Council, where should they go? The best place to go for all of the information I've mentioned and um, access to some of our databases is our website, which is www.herbalgram.org. Again, we are trying to bridge tradition with science so that everybody can get a feel for current evidence as well as history of use because you can't have one without the other. You, you can't just use a plant now. You can based on traditional evidence, but you don't really understand what's happening physiologically without looking further into studies. But if you're ever in the central Texas area, our gardens are open to the public Monday through Friday. Um, we're here. We also do guided garden tours for school groups, healthcare providers, etc. And uh, we have usually about a seven person minimum and a suggested donation, which is very reasonable. And we encourage everybody to come for a visit if you're in the area. It's a beautiful place with lots to learn just by being among the plants. Absolutely. The gardens at the American Botanical Council in Austin, Texas, are truly unique in design, beautiful to look at, and a wonderful source of knowledge about plants we can use as medicine. Be sure to visit if you can. That's all for now. This is Salwa Khan. Thanks so much for listening, and come back soon for more of Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. Mm-hmm.